Welcome to the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. The rise of AI presents important legal and ethical challenges for society. In this podcast, we invite leaders from different industries and creators of new AI to debate the big questions. This is the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. Today we are welcoming Amber Kak and Shazida Ahmed from the AI Now Institute, a research institute examining the social implications of artificial intelligence. Amber is currently director of global policy and programs at AI Now Institute at New York University, where she develops and leads the institute's global policy engagement and partnerships. And is also a fellow at the NYU School of Law. Amber has over a decade of experience in the field of technology-related policy across multiple jurisdictions, and has provided her expertise to government regulators, civil society organizations, and philanthropies. She is currently part of the strategy advisory board of the Mozilla Foundation. Shazida is a doctoral candidate at the University of California at Berkeley's School of Information. She is a 2020-21 fellow in Transatlantic Digital Debates at the Global Public Policy Institute. From 2019 to 2020, she was a pre-doctoral fellow at two Stanford University research centers, the Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. And the Center for International Security and Cooperation. Shazida has worked as a researcher for Upturn, the Mercator Institute for China Studies, Ranking Digital Rights, and the Citizen Lab. From 2018 to 2019, she was a Fulbright Fellow at Peking University's Law School in Beijing, where she conducted field research on how tech firms and the Chinese government are collaborating on the country's social credit system. Shazida's work on the social inequalities that arise from state firm tech partnerships in China has been featured in outlets including the Financial Times, Wired, the South China Morning Post. Logic Magazine, Technode, The Verge, CNBC, Voice of America, and Tech in Asia. With you now, our host for this podcast, Kelly Forbes. Welcome to the podcast, Amber and Jazida. Thank, Thank you so you much for joining、me. us today. So, just a brief introduction on. Um, the work that you both have been involved recently, and I think that's going to be part of our discussion today. So there has been、um, two important reports published:、uh, one by the AI Now Institute, and that's the regulating biometrics. And then we have another report that,、uh, by Article 19, which is called Emotional Entanglement. So I think probably a good place for us to start. Is by covering the definitions of emotion recognition and biometric recognition. So I know that there's a lot of,、um, I guess, misunderstanding in the industry about these definitions, what they actually mean, and you know, from what I understand, it it goes a little bit beyond、uh, facial recognition. So can I invite you、uh, both to share a little bit more about what that encompasses? 
I can uh, start, Shazita, just by talking a little bit about how biometrics has been defined, both just in the kind of legal and more public conversation, and then we can we can move into emotion recognition as a as a subset of that if you if you wanna. Although that's probably also up for debate. But yeah, like how do what are biometrics in the first place? I'd say that it's um, more a tricky question than it would seem, and that's mostly because most like legal and technical definitions of biometrics actually end up reinforcing certain claims of accuracy um, that are made by the biometrics industry. And those claims are what are today on, on shaky footing. So to, to give you an example, um, you know, we scanned uh, laws relating to biometric data globally, and we found that um, these laws typically defined biometrics as information about a person's bodily or behavioral characteristics that can identify, confirm, or validate official identity. So kind of stated it as if it was a truth that, you know, this voice print belongs to Amba, this face scan is Shazida's. These were kind of uh, intuitive, but also um, these are claims that are kind of backed up by the definitions of biometrics in the law. And the you, you mentioned face recognition, but other kind of typical examples of biometrics include fingerprints, um, uh, voice prints, which I just said, iris scans, there's a uh, recent work on gait recognition. Um, and, and sort of as I insinuated, recent research has explained, and we, we go into this into the report, that these claims of accuracy and the ability to uniquely identify a particular person um, are based on, on, on studies that don't hold in a range of real life contexts. Um, and, and you know have disproportionately higher error rates against uh, when it comes to certain demographic groups along lines of gender, um, ethnicity, age, uh, race, and so on. Um, so I mean I, I can I can stop there with biometrics, but one one uh, other point that is probably useful to emphasize is that legally biometrics um, are still defined based on their ability to link to a person's official identity, and that means their name. So emotion recognition systems, which is what Shazira has been working on, uh, which are systems that kind of infer, you know, deeper emotional states or personal personality traits, um, would only count as biometrics according to the law if they also identified the person. Um, and so the the I, I guess I think there's a this work by historian Jane Kaplan and she summarizes this as a as the question of what person is that to the question of what type of person is that? And so one way I would define it is to say that biometrics defined by the law is still very much looking at, you know, what or who is that person as a primary, uh, as a primary way to identify a biometric system. Right, thank you for that. I think that really clarifies. So, and when we think about uh, something that I think both reports touch on is the incompatibility between emotion recognition technology and international human rights. Um, can we dive into this and why that is the case? Sure. Um, and I'd, I'd like to offer the definition of um, emotion recognition that we kind of came to in the report for Article 19. So we called it a biometric application that uses machine learning in an attempt to identify individuals' emotional states and sort them into discrete categories, such as anger, surprise, fear, or happiness. Um, and input data can include individuals' faces, their body movements, vocal tone, spoken or typed words, and physiological signals, such as heart rate, blood pressure, breathing rate. 
So it's like Amba said, it's making inferences about a person's inner felt emotions based on expressions, you know, of their kind of body movements or facial muscle movements. And um, in our report, we actually foreground it by talking about, you know, exactly this tension Amba gets at in the definitions of biometrics, where there's tons of research that has showed, you know, we aren't, we can't really be certain that what people internally feel and is discreetly definable, measurable, that the methods that have been used for the past few decades in psychology and computing um, are necessarily measuring exactly what they say they're measuring. So we were kind of setting things up to say, you know, here's this huge body of literature showing across, you know, over a literature view of over a thousand papers or various experiments that try to kind of change certain variables um, in these methodologies show that this doesn't really hold and especially that it doesn't really hold across cultures, right? The ways people think about and describe emotions vary across cultures. Um, and so certainly the ways that you might express them, you know, based on your face or how you move or speak will be different. Um, and then that kind of, there are a lot of reasons that this ends up kind of being a, a series of human rights violations. So some of the examples we looked at in the report in particular, right, they included public security. So things like border security guards um, using software that based on your facial muscle movements might determine if your behavior is suspicious um, and then potentially putting you through secondary screening or police interrogations of uh, criminal kind of suspects to driving safety, right? So insurance companies monitoring if somebody seems like they're about to be angry and playing music that might distract you um, so that you don't get into an accident, to education, monitoring of students, everything from attention to performance in class to their emotional reactions to content. Um, all of these presented a completely different range of potential harms. So we talked about, of course, the right to privacy being lost. If there's this claim using this pseudoscientific technology that you felt a particular way in a particular situation and that is used to make a decision about you. Um, there's also fears around freedom of assembly, right? That people gathered in a particular public place that might have this technology being used on them. Inferences can be made about what actions they might take. Something that is really, um, you know, not surprising at all that came out of this is the ways it was described as being able to make predictions about people, for example, about people's propensity to commit violent acts. Um, you know, we were working, we were talking to a journalist who is going to be, um, release a piece hopefully soon where he interviewed one of the companies we covered in the report and they talked about how there was a violent incident in a school in their city a year before and they could have prevented it because they would have been able to detect the anger in the student um, and connect that data with you know local public security bureaus so there's also just sort of concerns around people's freedom of movement and which bodies of government have access to information about them and how they're using that information yeah. And so um, one thing that was highlighted as well in the reports is the timing of this conversation, how it's important, given that we are still um, in, a, in early developments, right, of these technologies. Um, can you expand a little bit on that? How, how and why this is so important right now? Sure. So something my co-author Vidushi Marta and I thought about a lot, especially because she's done so much work kind of pushing back against face recognition, um, was that 
the first known kind of public use of face recognition in the United States was at the Super Bowl in 2001. And it's been two decades and we're now very seriously talking about bans. And, you know, there's all this research about bias and inaccuracy um, and just all of the horrible kind of collateral consequences of face recognition systems used in things like policing. Um, and we didn't want to get there with emotion recognition. So we stopped and kind of asked ourselves based on all of this information we could find that's publicly available about how it's being developed and kind of justified, rationalized, you know, in China, whether it's from academic papers saying here are methodologies that can be applied and implemented in, you know, real world settings because they're already good enough, which they're not, to companies then echoing those claims in their marketing materials and government bodies um, sort of parroting exactly this same language because it fits with other kind of imperatives they have towards kind of public security, national security. Um, so we kind of wanted to open this conversation up now and um, draw awareness to it. And hopefully if, you know, it, we don't want this to be the next face recognition, right? We don't want it to then take off and suddenly there's thousands of companies around the world producing this. Um, and we're then having the conversations we're having with face recognition now. And so while it's not nearly as widespread as face recognition or other biometric applications, um, we kind of wanted to be early and point out all of these potential harms before, you know, this is rolled out more widely. Um, I'm really curious to hear what Amba has to say about all of this as well, because the regulating biometrics we've covered so many different application types. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, thanks. I think what we focused on in our report was actually what Shavita is uh, alluding to, which is that there's actually already so much, there's a, there's a policy window right now for regulating facial recognition in particular, and that's come because of massive civil society pushback all over the world. Um, and it's also come after literally decades of evidence that these systems have a high propensity to cause harm. Um, and so one of the, like a very popular refrain in this movement has been that biometric technology is no longer inevitable. And in some ways, the kind of clearest expression of that has been the fact that there are actual bans or prohibitions on these technologies that are being passed, particularly in the US. We've seen, you know, after, after years of sustained advocacy, there are now multiple city and state level bans on face recognition by police or government use. Um, in Buenos Aires, in Argentina, uh, there was a constitutional case filed against the use of facial recognition in public spaces. Um, in India and Kenya, there've been massive campaigns and uh, legal cases restricting the use of biometrics um, in government welfare delivery. And so all of this will make you think, I guess, in it sounds like a story of optimism, at least when it comes to the fact that the law is actually intervening. Uh, but as Shazira mentioned, in some ways, it, I, I, I definitely don't want to say it's too late, but it's definitely a very uphill battle because of its ubiquity in public and private spaces. And more importantly, you know, outside of the kind of circles that we operate in, which are people that are very concerned about the impacts of technology, I would say that there has been a kind of large scale normalization of these technologies in everyday life. And that's made it um, even harder to build a public campaign against this. So, you know, when it comes to, and, and, and just, to, just to speak back to emotion recognition, most, I would say almost all of existing regulation on biometrics would not cover emotion recognition unless it was also being used to identify people um, by their identity. So just emotion recognition on its own might not, might not even be covered by these laws. Um, 
and and that's changing so i think just just as one example i think some of the us uh, face recognition bills um i noticed define face recognition to include systems um that are that are inferring emotional states of individuals so it's changing but you're already sensing that we have this wave of regulation but you don't want a situation where we pass out of this law and then we're like oops it doesn't cover emotion recognition now we have to go back to the drawing board uh, and pass additional bans to ban these new technologies and and it's fueled that um that kind of cynical refrain that the law is always too slow to catch up with technology and we just don't want to reach that space um uh, reach that place with emotion recognition as well yeah There are a couple of things Amma just said that I also reminded me of why this is such an important moment to do this. So one is that in the tech companies that, you know, so I did this kind of deep dive Mandarin research where I looked at how tech companies in the emotion recognition space are marketing themselves and their products. And there were quite a few companies that would say emotion recognition is biometrics 3.0. 1.0 was fingerprints, 2.0 was face recognition. This is the next evolution. It's natural, you know, it's just what's coming. Everybody has to get on board with it. Um and it was interesting because scholars of emotion recognition like Luke Stark, um you know, when we ran this by him, I remember he was kind of surprised and thought well no that's not right an accurate representation of how, how this works but what was really interesting um was some of the companies that are doing uh that you know are already quite big in face recognition like hike vision were already also developing emotion recognition for use in classrooms and we found an academic paper where researchers were basically doing their emotion recognition experiments using hike vision cameras because they said it you know if this is high enough resolution to conduct very accurate face recognition then it we can you know it's good enough to use in our emotion recognition research and applications um so already there were quite a few different kind of stakeholders making that claim. Um and then the other point about regulation that's really interesting and and kind of the identification of an individual is it's almost like tech companies are kind of predicting that things might go in that direction because some of the so in a school where tested a behavior and emotion recognition system and it seems they actually rolled it back um within 2 months in China the company and the school administrators were kind of trying to defend themselves by saying no this doesn't violate students privacy because it doesn't identify individual students it just alerts the teacher in the moment it's ephemeral and then the data we collect is aggregated it's not really about the individual student and so i can already see there's going to be some blurring around there to make this still viable after tons of money has been sunk into research and development for it Absolutely. I was going to add that this is a similar conversation to what we are getting with the COVID tracking, um, um, you know, different systems around the world. The same conversation about it doesn't really track you, it doesn't track your identity, and not necessarily accurate. I would, I would assume as well. Yeah, and it's also similar because uh, we've been talking about how so many of the tech. infrastructures that are being created or justified as kind of covid surveillance measures uh, can later be used for uh, you know many other purposes by the state and so there's very little accountability because that function creep is in some ways just inevitable particularly if you've been working in the space we have we can kind of you know put our money on the fact that um that functions will change um and and that's something that we need to start talking about now yeah So and we are going to cover this a little bit more later when we get to the recommendations that are made in the reports 
But uh, we do know that some of the big tech companies have discontinued um, advancement towards these technologies like IBM. Uh, but at the same time, we also know that a lot of the governments, um, and I know the US has made a lot of um, advancement in terms of regulation there in the last couple of years in this area. Uh, but we do know that in other parts of the world, uh, specifically, you know, the Asia Pacific region, uh, governments are still deploying this throughout different um, uh, departments, you know, uh, to social services, uh, policing, and so on. So, um, and it's surprising, right? Because we we had, you know, even the big tech companies saying that we are this is simply not safe enough to be deployed right now, but we still do have governments deploying it. So what are your thoughts on that? We've gotten the safe enough question quite a bit on um, emotion recognition. And so to jump ahead to your question about the recommendations made, you know, it's really quite simple, right? We say ban the development, deployment and use of the, the systems we describe where you know, it's claiming emotions are discrete and measurable and then making decisions on them. Like we, you know, kind of blanket call for a ban on exactly that type of emotion recognition technology. And we also called for researchers to do more of the kinds of research you're seeing regarding face recognition and bias, right? Like it, it helps build a campaign against these technologies if as we're, you know, pretty sure if you tested them on more diverse data sets, you'd see that there were all kinds of flaws. So. You know, quite a few journalists have asked at this point, well, what if there were some kind of consumer oversight mechanism or like an external body that did audits? And we always kind of remind them, you know, it's the actual methodology this is built on that's flawed and the assumptions that it makes about true inner emotions, um, as well as the deployments of those assumptions out in the real world. So no consumer oversight board, no third party is going to eradicate that like fundamental problem. And when, so when I hear about kind of good enough technology, I, I'm immediately skeptical. Yeah, um, we, we have a lot of uh, conversations um, as well in the industry and um, effective as well. As I, it was actually covered in your report as well. And uh, we, we've spoken to them and they, they, they one of the leading organizations in emotional, uh, emotion AI. Um, and, and the argument seems to be that, uh, you know, this technology can be used for, to ensure safety of, um, you know, people in general, if it's used by government police, uh, it can also ensure the safety of drivers, so it can be installed in a car to make sure that it detects if the driver is falling asleep or whether the child, um, and there's an example as well of another company, I think in China, where, um, you know, it can detect whether the child is, um, you know, unsettled in the car, um, disturbing the parents in some way, and they can play a song or distract the child. It can be used to detect uh, um, and help with autism as well. Um, so, uh, but going back to your point, are we, uh, so your point is that it's still not okay because the fundamental challenges with these technologies cannot be avoided. Is that right? Yeah, and with all of the examples you just described, you know, we picked apart all of the ways in which they then, there's already some function creep there, right? Where it's okay, 
you know, we're identifying that the driver is fatigued and playing music or finding some way to alert them that, you know, you, you might not be at your like highest functioning level as a driver. But then the example with the ch children, you know, there's so many privacy concerns raised there about recognition of the child. And then the cl claim about playing, you know, music that the child likes or entertainment on maybe their tablet um, or the sound of their own, the child's own laughter means that you had to have recorded other data in advance, right? To know that this is this particular child, here are the things they might like, here's what their laugh sounds like. Um, and the thing that was in, uh, you know, of, of particular interest there was that, you know, this is all data being shared with insurance companies so that they don't have to pay out claims. Um, but, you know, there are so many examples, right, of, of various devices regarding cars and insurance companies where you end up finding that actually that data gets used for so many other things like pricing your insurance or <laughs> determining kind of what services and things you have access to. Um, I'm going to just go ahead and say I'm a non-driver. So a lot of that is like <laughs> foreign to me. Um, but in, you know, almost all of the cases we found, right, there'd been this need for additional data collection. And there are so many actors involved who could want to use this data for something else and probably already are, um, that I, I still hesitate to say, you know, this will get good enough without all of these other concerns that I, I totally understand researchers at places like Affectiva might not be thinking about all of these issues. What was super interesting to me is um, we did actually read quite a bit about Affectiva's thinking around how, um, yeah, you know, emotion is different across different cultures. So they've made an effort of collecting data, just more diverse data sets. Yeah. Um, they've thought about things like women wearing hijabs. And so that might change the way that your face is interpreted, you know, through um, computer vision. Um, but what was interesting is one of, when we were trying to look for studies that had done any kind of testing on emotion recognition, like adversarial testing on emotion recognition systems, we found one that compared a few Chinese um, kind of APIs to um, like Affectivas and a few other US companies. But they did the things like inserting noise or distortion or rotating images. Um, and the Chinese companies like far outperformed Affectiva and some of the American companies on a lot of these factors. But again, we don't have any data and don't know about the degree to which they would do so if you, if you gave them data from people of different ethnicities. Um, and so that was also kind of interesting knowing that because I was curious to see in the future, are these companies going to try to say, well, you can't fault us for that because we've done well, you know, look at the results of this independent research. And they're just not thinking about the social issues that we tried to foreground in our report. Yeah, absolutely. Just before, um, I think Amber has got something to compliment on that, but I was just going to say that, um, yeah, this is one of the things that actually the founder of Effectiva share with us is that, um, it's, it's very difficult as well for companies um, in other regions to compete with what China is doing uh, because um, a lot of the startups have do, uh, do have support uh, by the government. So in terms of access to data and training the AI and so on. I was actually going to respond, Kelly, just your first point on, on, you know, efficiency, security, safety as being the primary justification for um, having these systems systems um, be used. And um, one really, I think, key question that has been raised by community advocacy in response to this is the efficiency for whom, safety for whom, and security for whom. And that's just to basically question um, the, the fact that these systems might work for some sections of society, but the sections of society that they are typically working against are by and large 
communities or demographic groups that are already marginalized. So for example, if we take the example of efficiency that was used to justify biometrics uh, being used in welfare distribution by governments all over the world, they did studies, for example, in India, where the elderly and manual laborers whose fingerprints were um, most often failing the system were getting locked out of basic um, of access to kind of basic food provisions and uh, it, it led to starvation deaths right so on average you could say that system was efficient everything was happening quicker but it also led to more than 11 people um, elderly people actually dying because they were they were unable to access their pensions so similarly uh, you know even with safety and security I, I'm most familiar with uh, evidence from the U.S., but just the use of face recognition by police agencies, um, as well as uh, their use in homeless shelters and in rent-stabilized buildings has always been as a kind of tool um, for exclusion. It's been a tool that has made people feel tangibly more unsafe and insecure at the hands of state agencies. And so I guess, I guess what I wanted to emphasize again is that one common tactic for civil society organizations has been to always ask, okay, cool, it's efficient, but who is it efficient for? Um, and who does it make less safe, more insecure? Uh, and, and who is it less efficient for? And that kind of, I think, gets to the heart of many of the concerns with these systems. Yeah. So if I'm to conclude, I guess, this views um, is that, um, you know, I think a lot of the, a lot of the founders do have um, good intentions in developing this technology and and apply to solve some of these big problems that we have. Uh, but if I'm if I'm am to apply these conclusions, I think we can say that uh, really they have very limited control of at, at the end of the day how this technology is actually going to be used. So, you know, even though a lot of the founders would say, you know, we are building this technology for this, you know, and, and, and many, and it happens often that they, they have received an offer early on for this technology to be used for other purposes by the government and so on. Um, some of these founders have shared that with us. Um, and in all cases, I think that the control of where this is going um, it, it's essentially very limited that they have no control over the use of this. Would you say that that's probably right? Are you saying that kind of industry doesn't, is just creating the tools and they don't know, they can't control how these tools will be used? Yeah, so I think what I'm saying is that um, even though we have a lot of these companies that might have good intentions in terms of building these technologies, um, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, they have very limited control in how it's going to be used. Yeah, I mean, I would, I, I could agree with that. I guess my only hesitation is that if you look at biometric industry reports year after year, um, they're kind of flashing the fact that governments are their biggest vendors and, uh, sorry, their biggest customers. And they are therefore, um, you know, uh, they're gearing the industry towards their largest customer, which, which is the state. And then that comes with all of these other questions, which is, you know, um, to what extent are they sh the securitization of so many domains of governance, whether it's welfare or immigration, uh, you, you can argue it's coming out of the kind of political trajectory of government, but you can also argue that it is being, um, it's kind of being bolstered by an industry that is, is equally invested um, 
in in pushing the use of technology by the state uh, in these ways which can make a lot of us quite uncomfortable yeah i'd like to chip in and just add a few examples from the emotion recognition report so my instinct right in hearing this claim is also to think about how a lot of how Chinese government bureaus and law enforcement acquire technology comes through like a procurement process, right? So the companies are pitching what they have to offer based on a call for bids that describes, you know, exactly which government department or public security bureau or police kind of already needs it. Um, and I, I just, from my understanding of what I've seen in the data that's there, it's not that the government actors um, sometimes they are kind of envisioning here's a particular thing we want to use the technology for, but often the tech company has already run through all of these example cases that are, you know, attractive to a government, right? It's not like, oh, we developed face recognition. We never imagined it would have been used for policing, right? I mean, there's just like a laundry list of classrooms and prisons and right, they'll throw all of this together um, because they want to reach as wide an audience as possible. And I just increasingly saw evidence that, this is how the companies think of it as well, right? We have a quote from a CEO from one of the emotion recognition firms that says, government, you know, they're a really like lucrative um, kind of buyer because they have pain points um, and we have data and we have technology that can kind of solve their pain points. Um, at the same time, government data is really valuable to companies. So one of the papers we cite in the report is a study um, a few economists at Harvard did where they basically scraped a ton of this kind of procurement data about um, face recognition companies. And one of the things they came to realize was that face recognition firms of which there are hundreds in China, I could never name for you, <laughs> that no one you know, really knows, right? They're pretty yes. small. Um, they can, the companies that partnered with government and so basically got access to government data for their kind of training purposes were more likely to spin off commercial products after that than companies that did not partner with the government. So there's just this clear evidence now that it is really lucrative for these companies and there are additional like commercial incentives for their longevity to partner with government. Yeah. So why don't we jump into some uh, real cases? Um, and we know there's quite a few in China to cover, but there's also outside of China, uh, and a big one recently was Clearville, which um, one of the founders, if I'm not incorrect, is actually Australian. Um, so can we, can we cover some of these cases and what happened there? I don't know if you want to go, Amber, or... I can, I mean, I, I can give a summary about Clearview AI for anyone who has been living under a rock, or maybe not. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm biased because everyone <laughs> in my little bubble knows all about it. But Clearview AI, so they were, I, I don't know how to this. The company was a sort of inconspicuous startup, um, but um, in in early 2020, uh, they 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 came under scrutiny because there was a New York Times. Um, expose that that found that they had actually illegally scraped three billion labeled face or, or created a database of three billion face images and then uh, labeled those images, uh, matched them to names, and that they had actually scraped those from kind of so, the social web, so from social media websites and um, and and that kind of thing. And the company had then used these this database to market surveillance tools to a range of private and public actors. Um, you know, uh, claiming that its system could 
you know, in, in a jiffy, it could pull up identity and other intimate information about anyone whose image was in the database. Um, so I think right after the Clearview, the conversation uh, that came up was that actually Clearview is not an exception. It's the norm. There are so many, the fact that, you know, face photographs and voice recordings are today ubiquitous online means that the kind of financial or technical resources you need to create these databases are not not a lot. And that means there are probably, or there are scores of companies like Clearview AI. And I remember um, we heard very soon after that there was a German, uh, sorry, a Polish company called Sim Eyes uh, that was also marketing what they called a face search engine. Again, like a database with some like 900 million images that they had just scraped from the web and they were selling it to, um, to various vendors, including police agencies. Thank you for that. Does it make a difference if these organizations do ask for consent? Because a lot of the times that's what they claim. I don't even think they claim that, honestly, just because of the of the the size of, of, of these databases to begin with. Um, and, and I also think that it's a, you know, this is, this is, I think you, or maybe this is before we started recording, right? But you were saying that there's so much in this space that is legal, but, but may not be ethical. And I think face yeah. shaping is a really good example of that because a lot of laws would say that if you put your photograph on Facebook and your settings are uh, set to public because you don't know better, then you have voluntarily made your information public. Uh, but I think if you went back and asked that individual if they truly consented to their data not just being used by Clearview AI, but then being used by, say, police agencies, um, it's it's, un it's it's unlikely that their that their consent may hold. And so you're getting into a really tricky space where our laws are still structured on a on a pretty dated notion of consent and at odds with the way in which um, technology and business models have developed online. Yeah, and I think there was a large window where people was, were not really aware of how the information online was, could be used. Um, you know, I think this conversation is just coming out to the surface now with all the issues that we had recently involving big tech companies and, and how our data is being used. So, and I, you know, I think there was probably this large window where organizations could have, you know, used that for, you know, that benefit. Shazida, if I could invite you to share a little bit more about how this technology is being deployed specifically in China that you've, you've covered a few different cases there in the report. Sure, um, I, I mean, I can kind of start going backwards from within the report. The, we found kind of the most activity in the education space and we noted that part of why that might be is because hybrid education, which is kind of a mix of online instruction and in-person became very popular around, you know, when the pandemic was kind of raging through China. And I think in a lot of places it has remained quite common, not to mention because the Chinese um, curriculum is so rigorous, right? There's all kinds of market opportunities for extracurricular tutoring and schooling. Um, and so what we found there was lots of companies that are claiming they can detect students' emotions, um, as well as behaviors, like if they're paying attention to a lecture, you know, listening avidly or writing versus playing on their phones. Um, some of the things that were kind of interesting that came out there is the companies that uh, either 
what we noticed is when it came to very small children around kindergarten age, the companies would do a mix of like early education claims and security. So the idea is drawing upon real instances in which kindergarten teachers were found to have abused very small children who never reported it to their parents out of fear or just not understanding what was happening to them. Like some of these companies seize on those incidents and mention them in their marketing and say, we can detect fear on the children's faces. Like we can know way in advance if there's an adult in their space that shouldn't be there or that is harming them. Um, at the same time, they would also say, we can detect things like epilepsy and autism. So, you know, we can detect autism early on in your children. And we drew attention to that as, you know, these companies are not making medical grade equipment and they're claiming to do this in a non-medical setting. And it's also unclear to what extent doctors were consulted in designing these systems, right? So we just wanted to highlight all of the kind of holes in these arguments and these claims um, and the effects they could have if they are taken seriously because we don't know what the intervention would be if, the, if you know, this emotion recognition software claimed that your child might be um, autistic or have a learning disability. We also, so that, that was, there was a lot going on in the education space because um, that was the one place where we found public interviews in Chinese news media with students who had been exposed to some of these technologies with their teachers, um, with school administrators. And often what we found was students were a mix of, you know, totally disinterested, like, oh, this thing is buggy. We don't take it seriously, right? Like we're, when it came to high school students, especially, right? They're like, oh, we're teenagers, you know, our hairstyles change, our faces are changing. We have to sit in class every other month or whenever and retrain this system on our faces. Um, to students who were absolutely terrified because in not having been asked for their consent and not having this described to them, they could imagine the worst case scenario, right? Like, oh my God, what if this is a factor into determining where I go to college because of how I performed as a good student? And so some of the criticisms we saw as well coming from teachers um, and like education experts was the fear that this would create like a performativity imperative or culture where students would perform attentiveness and just be so focused on doing that that they couldn't really focus on listening or being you know, educated the way they had been taught to be schooled their whole lives. Um, and you know, parents pushed back for sure. I think what was really interesting is seeing some of the critiques from um, education experts and professors in China who said, you know, parents are really stuck in this situation because they want their children to succeed in this cutthroat system. Um, and so they, they don't necessarily feel that they have the room to push back against this new thing the school is trying. And then schools at the administrator level are trying to get more money for technology and trying to appear cutting edge to local governments that fund them. So there's all these different incentives tied up that can lead schools to make decisions without really researching the technology and understanding what it's doing and then having to deal with the backlash. Um, and so in the China AI newsletter, I also, along with Jeff Ding, who runs that, we translated an article that actually looked at um, how people reacted when it was revealed on social media that Megvi, um, you know, one of the biggest face recognition companies in China, was producing this like classroom behavioral recognition system and, you know, the backlash online it sounds like it led them to change the wording they used to describe the technology, but it didn't necessarily make it go away and it was still being used at universities and other schools. Um, so that's education, right? There's all of these things related to the sector and the culture and kind of the politics of education. Yeah. Driving is the least controversial and I can kind of hear when I talk to people that 
you know, sure, why would anyone be against something that can prevent accidents? Um, but we never, you know, most of the information we had about that came from tech reporting at like car kind of exhibition expo type places. So it wouldn't even necessarily be, hey, this car has been rolled out and tons of people are using it. It would be, here's a car that might be on the market in a year and here's this cool new feature that it might have. Um, so some of it came kind of embedded into the cars and then some of it was companies like Huawei also saying, hey, we can make a device that you would use in your car that would do these things um, and share data with these kind of big insurers. And again, our concerns around this were, well, what else is this data being used for? <laughs> How do children and passengers become implicated? What happens when there are also sensors collecting data about other cars on the road. Then these other cars that have no way to opt into having this data collected about the drivers and the cars are part of this system. Um, and we also had found it, in some places I tried to intersperse papers suggesting uses of some of the technologies we looked at. So it wasn't something that was already happening, but it gave us these contours of where do people think this might go? And one was setting up an emotion recognition system at a toll booth to allegedly detect if someone was likely to harm the toll booth operator. And again, this is just very random, right? There's no background <laughs> context of, hey, toll booth operators are, you know, yeah. have been victims of abuse, right? And, and so there was just discussion of how all the data you could collect in that situation would be used in something like a driver credit system to see, you know, if you're a good driver and if you're responsible and you pay tolls. The other, yeah, the other thing was just judging from the person's face if they might evade the toll, right? How does one predict that? Is there a face you make before you dodge paying yeah. a toll? And how um, often does that really happen? <laughs> yes, and that is exactly the point of the public security one, which I was about to get to, which is, you know, tons of people have made the argument, like, how do you really predict acts of terror when they're so rare that we don't have a ton of data on them and it's not easy to develop predictive models? Um, and then, so in the use cases in public security, right, I guess three that really stand out are um, at kind of borders and big kind of transit hubs like railway stations, bus stations to have this to see, you know, if people are suspicious and then maybe pat them down extra or look through their, their things to see if they're carrying contraband goods. Um, as well as police interrogation. <laughs> so there was an example of a company that, you know, there hasn't been a lot written about them in recent years, so they might be defunct, but they were operating in a province that really wanted to be known as like China's big data province. Um, and, you know, many, like five years ago, companies like Tencent were, were building like server farms and caves there because they really wanted to say, hey, this lush, remote, like Western Chinese province no one would ever come to can attract tech companies. So a local tech company there um, was trying to develop emotion recognition to detect if you know criminal suspects were lying in a police interrogation and they had they went from they claim 50% accuracy to 80% accuracy when local public security bureaus gave them archival interview footage to train their system on. Um, so again, there's just these incentives for local governments to share data because they claim, you know, we can work with this company, they can provide us with free trainings. Um, Again, there's just so much, especially in the public security realm where we're not going to get a whole lot more information um, than the marketing materials, but it's still quite troubling, right? And the last example is, is prisons. 
Um, so a company that provided this technology in all of the use cases in driving safety and education was also claiming that they would be able to detect if prisoners were going to commit self-harm or, you know, that there would be like a prison riot and they could quell and suppress these things by pre um, predicting them in advance. And again, I don't know how frequent any of the above is in Chinese prisons. It's kind of a recurring theme here that we don't really know if the phenomenon being prevented is really yeah. preventable. Yeah, yeah. So how how different is the landscape, the legal landscape in China that allows for all these cases? And I guess um, then um, Amber can probably provide a global perspective of how that influences the rest of the world. Um, I have a brief answer to that, which is it's really not very different from what Amber described. There aren't a really very specific call outs to emotion recognition in Chinese law, certainly none that I can think of right now. And even kind of language around biometrics is pretty fuzzy. Um, and I just, I, I don't see any clear argument right now as to how some of the technologies we're talking about banning would be banned. I will flag that there's been some developments um, in pushback against face recognition's use in certain contexts in China. and. Something that I find kind of unfortunate and a missed opportunity while simultaneously being excited that people are pursuing this avenue at all is that it's being kind of relegated to consumer protection. Um, and I, I see how that's fruitful in China, um, but also as you know, it has become clear over the course of this conversation, in many of these situations, people are not consumers. Um, and so what you end up having is this kind of piecemeal litigation, right? There's lawsuits being brought about banning face recognition in residential complexes and places like zoos. But as Amba said, you just end up kind of reduplicating efforts that should be broader and should be thinking about the potential harms these technologies cause kind of regardless of where they're being used. Yeah. yeah, and what I would add to that, I'm not super up to speed on um, Chinese the Chinese data security law, but um, the the GDPR and I would say the count is something at like 130 other countries currently have data protection principles that include data minimization, and that's the principle which says that you shouldn't collect more data than you need or that is kind of necessary to fulfill your stated objectives. Um, and that might seem like a kind of, you know, um, like, a, like a pretty regular provision, but I think it can be quite powerful when applied to many of the uses of face and emotion recognition that um, Shavira just pointed out, right? Like just that question of, do you really need face data to, um, you know, verify whether students, uh, verify student attendance? Um, could be and was a question before a Swedish court and they just using, you know, plain vanilla data protection principles decided that it was, um, it was, it was uh, foul of the data minimization law and therefore it should, it should, that system, that facial recognition system should be banned. So I'm giving that example to say that obviously the question of bans and we're seeing a lot of um, activity on that front, particularly in the US is, is, is still in motion, but already we do have certain legal tools. The problem is that they're just rarely being applied to actually challenge these systems. So rather than a kind of evidence-based scrutiny of the link between the means and the ends, the much broader rationale of say security or efficiency in service delivery is usually satisfying most people, including courts. 
And so, and, and this I would say globally is a conversation on how can we use existing data protection law, not just as to add procedural safeguards, but actually to prevent these systems in the first place. Um, yeah. Right. So when it comes to the US, we know that uh, there's been a lot of developments uh, around regulating this industry, uh, but it is still, from what I understand, quite, uh, you know, short when it comes to um, um, really limiting these developments. Um, and it doesn't really fulfill the recommendations that I think you both are making in this report. Is that right? Is that the case? How does it actually limiting, how is it actually limiting the, the developments in this industry now? Okay, well, like Shavira said, right, like the demand that they make in their report is ban the design, conceptualization, deployment, and use. So the whole full spectrum. Now compare that to what we're actually seeing in the US, which is, mind you, where we're seeing the most activity. And you, you hear a lot of headlines which say facial recognition banned in such and such city, but you look the actual text of the law and two things. One, you realize the scope is almost always with one exception um, limited to government use of that technology. And secondly, it's only targeting use, right? So it's saying do not procure these technologies for police use. But in no way is that stopping the kind of broader machinery of design de de development of these technologies to begin with. And that's an important um, feature because most of these uh, laws that have come up in the US over the last two years have come up at a very uh, local level. So either city or district level. And then, you know, at the end of the day, it's definitely sending signals to industry that this is a risky, you know, this is getting to be a riskier industry to put all of your investment into. And maybe you should start rolling it back. But it's nowhere near at the scale it needs to be, which is why I think a kind of concerted global campaign that says, these technologies are just based on pseudoscience. They are not inevitable. They need to be stopped is important because, again, it's sending signals. And as a lawyer, I, I hold this. I, I, I always say this, that sometimes it's not even about passing the law as much as it is about giving giving the industry signals that this is this is a kind of domain that they need to retreat from, um, that, you know, the growth trajectory that they're banking on is unstable and subject to regulatory intervention. And just that signal alone can be really powerful, particularly at this early stage. Right. And so if we're looking, uh, if we're looking to the future in terms of predictions and where this is all going, um, in terms of, I think specifically in terms of this, you know, regula regulatory developments, um, do you have hope for where this is going? Do you think that this is these developments are at least a sign that you know perhaps we are heading in the right way? Yeah, I have to say, I mean, um, compared to five years ago, there is a heated public conversation on these issues. We have um, you know policies that are at least being debated globally. Um, like I said, the refrain that these technologies are not inevitable is really gathering steam. Um, all of that, all of that is true. So I, I would just definitely say that the, the the you know I'm optimistic at the same time. Like Shazira said, the question when it comes to biometric systems more broadly is that they're already so entrenched. You know, you go to an airport, you go to a school, you go to you know even public spaces. These technologies are everywhere, and they are, um, and, and that that really makes it an uphill battle. And it means that at every step, 
governments and other stakeholders are going to argue that they've sunk costs, right? They've already invested in these systems. So um, they're not going to roll them back completely. They might agree to procedural safeguards or, you know, those kinds of things, but they're not going to roll back these systems completely. And so that's the kind of, I think that's where the, the rubber meets the road. And then we really need to have a conversation about, um, you know, let's not get to that point with emotion recognition. But as Shadira's pointing out, it's already it's already getting to the too late point, even with that. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I feel that, you know, when it comes to the legal landscape, we are taking baby steps, but the technology is not, right? So, and it depends on how fast this technology moves. Um, you know, the concern is that, you know, um, the timing is not ideal. Let's say something that makes me optimistic and what I was really happy to find when I was doing the research for the emotion recognition report was the growing awareness of the potential harms of this technology in China. Um, I think it's just so common if you're only reading English language media about China to think that it's this monolithic country where everyone thinks the same thing and no one's critical of technology. Or if you even take one step past that and say, okay, yeah, some people are critical of technology, but what can they possibly do about it? Um, you know, every time I, I see any action towards doing something something about it, I, I feel, you know, excited to see kind of where it's going and what kinds of pushback people are able to make effective. Um, and I just want to draw as much attention to that as possible. Yeah, I think, I think fighting misinformation and just helping people to understand what this involves, like in that example that you're using um, in education, for example, the parents, I think that if you do understand how this is being deployed and the potential that has, I think any parent, uh, you know, I myself, I'm a parent of a three-year-old in the kindergarten, I would be very concerned about how, you know, this is being deployed and, you know, where this is going as a parent. Uh, it is the case that unfortunately we're probably not there yet that, you know, all uh, population really has that deep understanding, I think, about how this is all being, being used. Uh, well, but we are getting to the end of this conversation and it's been a long one. There's so much more we could cover. Uh, thank you so much, you both, for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for having us.